Please pray with me. Um, Heavenly Father, we welcome you to this place, to the hearts and minds of your faithful servants and followers. They long to hear from you. And so I welcome you to use me this evening as I convey your word and mission to those in attendance today. Open our ears so that we may hear, quiet our hearts so that we may breathe, breathe anew the wonder of your words. Amen. All right, please be seated. So on Sunday, March 7th, 1965, depending on what side of the globe you were on and if you were born at that time, um, you would have either uh, been on your way to a religious service or you would have just returned home. You probably would have sat down and as was the custom at the time, you would have turned the television on to grab a bite to eat and then you would have seen a bewildering image on the screen that day. A clash between people of color and police officers happening in a bridge in America in a place called Selma, Alabama. You would have then noticed that the people of color weren't actually really fighting back. And so the thought would have gone through your mind, what's, what's going on? I need more information. I need to know what's happening. So you go over to the television and you turn the volume up as loud as you could as you listen very carefully to what the reporter had to say. And then you hear them say something that you can't quite understand. And so you look to your friends and you're like, did they say what I think they just said? Did I hear that properly? And what you heard was them say that some of the churches in Alabama, some of the pastors and preachers were all supportive of these actions because they were endeavoring to protect the rights of that society and God's plan for racists to never intermingle. On that fateful Sunday, people all over the world would have heard that same message from that particular church body. Some of them wondering, is it just me or has all of humanity lost its mind? Martin Luther King wrote that there was a time when the church was very, very powerful. And in those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. He goes on to say that if the church today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. That day in 1965 is one of the many markers in which the church has shown throughout history exactly and sadly how not to reflect the kingdom of God. That church body missed a step, I think. They forgot that we serve a God who sent his son to die for our sins and announced his kingdom was at hand, a message Jesus proudly and happily delivered by not bullying. There was no arrogance. He didn't demand his followers by forcing the world to do whatever they wanted him to do but through a theocracy in which he proclaimed the kingdom of God by going around healing, feasting, helping the weak, sowing unity, encouraging the meek, and so on. And so the question from religious leaders everywhere as they witnessed this this carnage and this scene, um, some of them were in the mix on that bridge themselves, and they heard the same message from their peers It was a question that rang from the voices of God's people from the time of the Jewish exile to Christians today as we face the issues that that we wrestle with together as a body of Christ. The question is, where do we go from here? And a funny thing happened to me as soon as I wrote this question down as I was writing this sermon. An image popped in my mind, and I tried to shake the image because I was like, no, this is totally inappropriate. doesn't make sense, but I couldn't shake it, so I decided we're just going to roll with this image. So the question is, where do we go from here? This is Inigo Montoya. (laughs) You did not kill his father, so you do not have to prepare to die. Um, So Inigo Montoya reminds us in The Princess Bride that when a job went wrong, you went back to the beginning. And this is where we got the job. So it's the beginning, and I'm staying until Vincini comes. Incarnation, will you please go back to the beginning with me? 
back to the days of the church that was so amazing, the one that King spoke of. I invite you to come with me and rediscover the opportunity and the importance that that early church can bear on us, or at least, at the very least, have some semblance of an echo of how we navigate the issues that we are facing as a church body today. Please turn to Acts chapter 6, verse 1, if you would like to follow along. And so that we can focus in on the correct interpretation of this message in Acts, we must first understand where they are in relation to the end of Jesus's ministry um, and the formation um, of the church. So it's at this point that a bit of biblical history becomes really helpful, in particular, a little bit of Bible trivia that, that gives you the knowledge that Luke is both the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. They are both originally the same book. They were separated for practical and organizational purposes. And the whole point of that is that Acts is quite literally, quite literally, the continuation of Jesus' ministry after his resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. Hence, at the beginning of Acts, we encounter the resurrected Jesus instructing his disciples about what to do next. And what they did next was go to Jerusalem and start the movement. So, if we are playing the telephone game, has anyone ever played the telephone game before? Okay, none of the kids are raising their hand because they're like, what's a telephone? We have iPhones. Um, the game, it's a game in which you try to whisper a message from one person. You, I tell one person in front of a room a message, and then the game is to try to get that message to get to the back of the room without it being distorted at all, that it's still the original message that you got. So for example, I would say something like, uh, I whisper to Beth, hey Beth, uh, a Taco Bell chicken quesadilla with extra creamy jalapeno sauce. And inevitably, by the time the message got to the back, to, like, to my father-in-law back there, who I just noticed sitting there, um, <laughs> by the time the message got to my father-in-law, the message would probably sound something like this. My grandmother see his farts smell like a dreamy beano moss. The point is, the early... <laughs> That's how the game works. It phonetically sounds the same. Some of the words are a little bit similar, but inevitably it's, it's just a little bit off. It's distorted. So the point is the early church is quite literally hearing from the lips of the disciples what Jesus told them to do. You can't get any closer to the original source of the message than actually being one of the disciples. So when we look at that church in Acts 6, I hope the importance of what was happening there about what they were doing is coming into focus for us now. There has been very little time for distortion. It's a very good place to go back to. It is quite literally the beginning. And as I dive into the text, there are three things that I'm going to talk about that jump out at me. They had a commitment to care for their community. And this was no matter who those individuals were or what, whether or not it was countercultural, it did not matter. They had a leadership structure. In particular, one that encouraged those within that body, within that community, that wanted to participate in all the good work that was happening, there was a way for them to be able to do just that. And they exercised sound wisdom when they were choosing their leaders. So let's start with the first thing, the commitment of the church to care for its community. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Right away, three things jump out at me. We have a growing congregation. That is amazing. And then we have a clash of culture that's happening. You have the Hellenistic Greek Jews and the Hebrew, um, the Hebraic Hebrew Jews. There's something happening between them. Somebody's really upset. And then there's this thing called the daily distribution that's happening place. There's so much happening in this, in this part of the, the story that by the time I get to the fact that there's distributions happening, I'm already excited about what's occurring in this church. They are doing life. 
And it's not perfect by the nature of the complaint. It's not perfect, but it's working. Here in the 20th century, we can hardly get a Democratic or Republican Christian to worship under the same roof. Yet the early church had people that are not even from the same culture, not speaking the same language, all endeavoring to honestly do life with one another. They had even set up a system that was designed to take care of everyone and anyone who was in need of food or assistance or prayer or teaching or anything that they needed, regardless of their culture, regardless of their sex or their country of origin, their marital status, they could get it. And for someone to not get it, that was the part that was actually unacceptable, that needed to be corrected. I've heard countless stories, and I've personally experienced being told I didn't fit into a congregation. Go across the street to the Korean church. Go to the black church on the other side of town or the other side of the tracks. And this isn't a knock against those churches. What it is is a point that part of our structure that could be missing that's really important is we have to have a way to welcome all people. It's a little absurd, I think, that it's rare and extremely notable when we hear about a church like Incarnation that is endeavoring to do what you are doing. When we see a church that is striving to simply be what the early church was like, it was a place where all who were thirsty, all who were weak could come to the fountain and dip their hearts in the stream of life. It's rare but it's something that the early church had as a marker and a reflection of Jesus's life and his ministry. Be committed to the people you care for, all that come to you. And that's everyone. This brings us to the next key that comes into focus. There exists a leadership structure with committed disciples. So Luke writes, and the 12 summon the full number of the disciples. There is a people power happening here. There's not individual people trying to do everything themselves. They have taken the time to find people with interest in certain areas of ministry. They have poured into them and given them the charge and the opportunity to actually do those things, like pray and distribute food and gather grievances and bring it to their attention, which is what gives more depth to the next thing that the apostles say, which is it is not right that we should give up preaching so that we could serve tables. Preaching is what they were gifted and called to do. In a book called The One-Minute Manager, the author writes, effective managers manage themselves and the people they work with so that both the organization and the people profit from their presence. I am not suggesting that the church is a business because it is not. However, it is an organization and it has at its core a goal and a mission to connect people to God. If the apostles are getting involved in the weeds of every single issue, to the point where they are waiting tables to ensure that someone is getting a fair ration, the preaching, the spreading of the gospel, the making of new disciples, all the things that Jesus charged them to do, trained them to do, taught them to do, those things suddenly stop. There must exist a leadership structure, which brings us to the last message. You must exercise sound wisdom in the choosing of leaders. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven good men, men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them.
So someone told a lie one day, and that lie spread. And the lie was that women don't matter, and that widows matter less. That lie was told in various languages to different women all over the world. And then there came the Messiah who set the record straight through his actions, through his love and care and attention to the welfare of various women throughout his ministry. Actions that said to all women that you do matter, all of you. In this particular case, it is the Greek widows that are still living in the lie. And it is important to the apostles that the lie is corrected in word and action, but also in the truth of the gospel. There is so much happening in this selection process, but for the sake of simplification, I want to just address those things that just blaringly jump out at us right away. There was a standard of character that they were looking for. People of good repute, and and they were full of spirit and wisdom. These are not dime a dozen personalities. They're just not grabbing people. They're grabbing godly people, people who've studied the word, who care, who could get up and preach a sermon if they really needed to. They're not just grabbing random, random people from the congregation. These are the kind of people who have qualities that you have to search for. You have to do life with these people to see if any of these qualities are actually coming to the forefront. It would be people who studied the word and meditated, and you could see it very clearly coming out in their daily lives. On the same line as character, they selected people who could get the language right. If you notice the names of all the people who were chosen, they're Greek. They're Greek. The solution had to make sense to the complaining party. The Greek women had an issue. And that issue had to be agreed upon, understood by them in the way that they needed to hear it culturally. They need to hear it from their people. What is this? And more than that, they need to hear the gospel and how that played into the gospel in their tongue so that everything was fully understood. They had to get the language right. And there was a commissioning, a historic laying on of hands by the apostles, a passing on of the spirit of God, a signification to the church that these leaders were legit. They were legitimate. I wondered a lot as a kid, and I watched these these videos in my classes about civil rights movement and all that stuff, and I wondered when I had heard that news broadcast and that that was what was being said, I wondered what would have happened on that Sunday if those priests left their pulpits, anyone in the vicinity of that bridge, and walked out, and they asked the cops to stand down. Cops who, I don't know this, but in my holy imagination, I have to believe that some of those cops attended some of those congregations because they were local police officers. What if they said to, to Bob and Joe and Larry and Luke, hey, guys, 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 we know a better way to handle the grievances of other Christians against us. Grievances about how our culture and our faith are hurting our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We reread Acts 6, guys. We almost got it wrong. Stand down. We almost got it so very wrong. I imagine that. What's missing from the end of the story? A solution. We get to the end of the story and we never hear what the actual solution was because it doesn't actually matter. The message is what matters. We pray. We assign the right people, people of good repute, full of spirit, who know the word of God clearly, who can get the language right, and we let them work out an agreeable solution. 
Now, will this always work? I think it depends on your vision, how long your vision is, on your trust in the work of the Holy Spirit. Because many churches, even the one that we're talking about now, they got it right. But in the short term, they were still persecuted. But because they got it right, those that fled the persecution established churches with the same message that they got in Antioch, and they got it right. And the telephone game started, and they started another church, and that church got that part of the message right. We care for everybody. We care for everybody. We love like Christ. We do not discriminate. We love. We care. We love. We care. So if you were to ask me in the long view to where we're sitting right now from that original church and the first message that was shared, yeah, they got it right. Because the next line is, and the word continued, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. When we care for those we lead, when we build a viable structure of leadership and discipleship, and we appoint leaders with wisdom and godliness, we are at the very least, beginning to echo that early church. I am so excited for you, Incarnation, for the opportunity that you have, for what is happening here, from what I hear, from what I see. You give hope that no matter how many times the body of God, the churches all over the country or the world misstep, we can and we should still endeavor to get the message right. We are the people of God. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit, for the way that it works. Thank you that though your vision is so much longer and so much larger than ours, Lord. Give us the strength, the fortitude, the ability, the courage to get the message right, no matter the cost, no matter the journey. Help us to be just what you've commanded us to be, your people. In your name we pray. Amen.